Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. A special welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, I want to thank the Blog Talk Radio team for recognizing research at the National Archives and beyond and featuring this show all day today on their homepage. Now, You can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern, where I will have a wonderful lineup of experts who will share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. All of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions of the guests. Now, following the show, you can continue the discussion in the Slave or the Genealogy and History Forums of AfroGenius.com. Also, all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast and can be downloaded from iTunes or Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's topic is on the slave ship manifest to New Orleans between 1807 and 1860. Now, how many of you really understand that the domestic slave trade transported approximately 1 million slaves from what was called the Upper South to the Southwest? Now, I know that I have looked through records, my ancestors' records, and I've noticed they're in Louisiana, but I'll see Mother, Father, Virginia. And the question is, well, how did they get to Louisiana? Well, the answer may be that they were a part of this domestic slave trade. And the guest for tonight, Claire Cuskins, is a genealogical project archivist specializing in immigration, census, and other records of high genealogical value. She spearheaded the completion of more than 300 National Archives microfilm publications. 
She lectures frequently and has published extensively in national, state, and local genealogical publications. Claire has been a National Archives staff member since 1992 and has done genealogical research since 1976. Well, have you ever reviewed the Slave Ship Manifest to New Orleans? Did you find your ancestors? Well, Claire Cluskins will provide a detailed discussion of the National Archives microfilm publication M1895. The official title is The Slave Manifest of Coastwide Vessels filed at New Orleans between 1807 and 1860. And we're talking about 30 rolls. Can you imagine how many names are on those 30 rolls? These federal records names the slaves as individuals. The records are part of Record Group 36, records of the U.S. Customs Service. So let me give a warm welcome to Claire Kluskins, to research at the National Archives and beyond. Claire, welcome. Well, thank you for having me on, Bernice. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Well, let's start off with you. What motivated you to pursue a career as an archivist? Well, Bernice, I'm sort of an accidental archivist. Um, My initial career goal was to uh, get an undergraduate degree, go to law school, and then practice law. And I did practice law for a short while in my home state of Ohio. But as you know, life sometimes takes a different turn than your initial plans. And I married someone who accepted a job in the Washington, D.C. area. So I landed uh, in Washington, Washington, D.C. And I would go to the National Archives from time to time to do genealogical research on my own family. And uh, one day I noticed a vacancy announcement for an entry-level archivist position. And I applied, and the rest is history. So I've I've been with the National Archives since 1992. Well, that's quite interesting. I didn't know that you were first into law. Yeah. So what is the role of an archivist at the National Archives? Well, different archivists do different things, and I, I guess I could tell you about three different types of archivists that we have. Uh, we have reference archivists who respond to inquiries from the public, that we receive by mail, by email, by phone, and in person. And, of course, those are the archivists with which the public is most likely to have interaction with. We also have project archivists who get the records ready for public use. For example, say we we receive boxes of records from a government agency. They need to be put into archival boxes for permanent storage. They may need new folders, and they need to be described so that both the staff and the public have some basic information about the content of those records. And so that's what what, what project work involves. Um, Some project archivists, such as myself, are involved in the microfilming or digital filming of records to make them easier for the public to access. And then I guess a third type of archivist uh, are the appraisal archivists. And they're the archivists who go out to the different federal agencies on a regular basis to find out what records are being created and to help those agencies determine which record series have permanent value to eventually be retained by the National Archives. And it's it's estimated that only 3 to 5% of the records weren't being saved forever, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's still a huge amount. And in, in general, as a sort of overall view, 
the records to be saved either, one, document the rights of individuals, uh, two, document the actions of federal officials, or three, document the national experience. And, of course, we have other staff members that are involved in other things, such as the website, publications, and the whole gamut of positions that are necessary to run a government agency. Mm-hmm. Well, did you have to go through any particular type of training beyond your law degree uh, to qualify you for your current position? Well, in, in general, most of the archivists uh, that we have are going to have either an under, a degree in archival science or uh, some degree with an adequate amount of uh, coursework in archival science, history, political science, or government, um, that kind of thing. And, and most of the new archivists come in with a graduate degree in history or some other field, uh, such as law, such as I did. Um, so it, it doesn't, you know, obviously have to be a degree in law. I just happen to be uh, sort of unusual in that respect because most of the uh, folks coming in have a have a graduate degree in history. Uh huh. Well, we have a comment coming out of the chat from Family Tree Girl, and she says she wants to be an archivist. <laughs> you know, is it time for career change? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, are you having fun? <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm having fun. You know, I, you know, it's, it's, it's. You never know what you're going to find when you open up a box of records. You might find something cool and unusual that no one has really looked at in hundred years. Uh, on the other hand, um, um, you know, it, it can also be a lot of, you know, really uh, drudge work trying to get things done. But it's, it's something that has to, you know. There, there's work that has to get done in order to get the records available for public use. And, and of course, if you respond to inquiries from the public all day long, you might hear the same questions over and over over and over again. So that might get boring for some folks, too. Right. Well, why don't you please, I mean, just help us understand the historical context of the domestic slave trade. Okay. Well, the in 1786, the Constitution was written, and there was a lot of, contention between the northern and southern delegates over several issues, one of which was slavery. And so they uh, adopted a compromise uh, at the Constitutional Convention, and that was that the importation of slaves uh, would continue to at least until at least 1808, that Congress could not prohibit it until 1808. Uh, And the other things they compromised about had nothing to do with slavery, but that for the Southerners was the big was the big thing. Um, so in 1807, Congress enacted a law banning the importation of slaves beginning January 1 of 1808, and in 1820 they passed another law deeming uh, the importation of slaves piracy punishable punishable by death. Um, so neither one of those laws, of course, banned the domestic slave trade, but in order to make sure the law was being followed paperwork was going to be necessary. Uh, And so to make sure that slaves arriving on a boat at a U.S. port were from the U.S. and not from Africa, uh, Congress, in the the law they enacted in 1807, required that two copies of the manifest um, be made out. One was filed at the port of departure, and an identical one was filed at the port of of arrival. And the uh, customs officials at the port of arrival you know, had to sign off on that manifest, agreeing that what they, the folks they had in front of them, were the folks on that manifest. Mm-hmm. 
Now, although we're talking about a slave ship manifest to New Orleans, were there other manifests to other ports? Well, with, with these slave manifests, there's really sort of two subsets. One is the, the inward manifests, the manifests that are of slaves arriving at a particular port, such as New Orleans. And then you also have a second set, which is the, manifest, the outward manifest, that second copy or the first copy, if you will, which is the slaves leaving a particular port, such as New Orleans, that are going to some other port. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, you've got at each each port that was involved, essentially two sets two sets of records. And just give us more information. I mean, tell us about the, the manifest themselves. Okay. Well, I've got a few uh, here in front of me, and I won't bore your uh, listeners by reading them to death. But, uh, for example, I have one here from, from 1860, and it's uh, an inward manifest. It's of the slaves on board the SS Mexico uh, of New Orleans. That was the home port of that vessel, um, whereof Talbot is at present the master, the captain of the vessel, uh, bound from the port of La Salle, which I believe was in Texas, for the port of New Orleans. And then it lists the names and information of the of the different slaves on that vessel. And there was uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight on this ship. Um, for example, there was James, who was male, age 60. He was 5 feet 8 inches tall. Um, his skin color was described as griff, um, that's G-R-I-F-F-E. Uh, and then it lists the other slaves, and I can list them for you if you like. And all of them were being um, shipped. Uh, the, the shipper or the owner, it doesn't say which, but the shipper or the owner was Armott, who lived in New Orleans. And uh, okay. and then it, it indicates that um, it uh, departed from La, from La Salle on the 25th of October 1860, mm-hmm. and then it was uh, then it arrived in New Orleans on the 25th of October of 1860. Now you mentioned Talbert, and I've seen Talbert's name on other ships. Uh, can you give us an idea first of all? Uh, where did the typical slave ships come from going to New Orleans? That's the first question, and I'll let you answer that. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, on, on the second page, on the, on the back side of this manifest, it indicated his initial, Talbot's initials were W.H. Talbot. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, the, uh, the ships were coming from as, nor- as far north as uh, Baltimore, at least when I reviewed the, the film. They were coming from it as far north as Baltimore, um, as and of course as far west as as Texas, um, and so that was the range in which the ships were were traveling. Mm-hmm. Now, did you see that the ships would pick up in one port and continue going, or they would go from port to port until they they would fill up the ship? Well, um, that's hard to say. There was one manifest I I saw when I was looking yesterday where the uh, ship had started in one port and then had uh, stopped in Florida and then continued on to New Orleans. But um, I, I think in, of the ones that I actually looked at, most of them were going from one specific U.S. port to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a, another question coming out of the chat. They want to know where were the largest ports? Um, 
Well, you know, slave trade is not something I'm exactly an expert on, so I'm not real uh, clear on that. However, the, the history of it, as I understand, is that um, the northern states started having a surplus, the, the, the northern, the, the upper south, I should say, not the northern states, the upper south started having a surplus of, of slaves because the uh, tobacco fields in the upper south were uh, becoming depleted uh, mm-hmm. fr- from, uh, from the overuse. They were being exhausted, and they had a surplus of, of slaves up there. And so the south, as the as cotton became king and as the cotton belt expanded across the south uh there was a greater need for more labor down there and so you have this large as you mentioned at the beginning of the show the the large transportation of of slaves from one part of the united states to other to to the to the other and uh one source that I read said that 1836 was the peak year of the traffic, and it said that more than 120,000 slaves from Virginia alone were sold to the Lower South. Uh, but then in the 1850s and 1860s, the traffic slowed a, a little bit because of a revival of agriculture in the, in the Upper South uh, due to uh, better methods of curing tobacco and the introduction of new and superior varieties of tobacco. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I mean, just just listening to you know to you talk about you know how uh, humans were transported just for the whole purpose of the economy. I mean, to agriculture, and they didn't need them in the tobacco growing country, so they sent them down south to deal with the the cotton. The the whole idea of this is is so hard to to wrap my hands around oh really but it is it is appalling you know it's it, utterly appalling and we can't hardly imagine it today yes know? well how many records did you and your team go through uh and just describe to us other ships that you uh reviewed so that we could get a really good idea of just what the manifests look like and how are they organized okay well, first let me say that, um, in, so that your, your callers, and your callers probably already know this, that the, the National Archives is the custodian of the permanently valuable records of the United States federal government, and the archives was not created by Congress until 1934. So in many ways, the fact that so many records have survived for over a century or more before there was a National Archives is, is quite amazing in some ways. Yes, it is. It is. Um, so we're quite lucky, and, and of course that also means that not all the records from those years survived either. Um, so the um, the records are arranged, as I sort of mentioned earlier, by by type. There are the inward manifest, the manifest of vessels going to New Orleans, and then there's the next subseries, if you will, the rec- the manifest of the of the vessels leaving New Orleans, um, and they're arranged chronologically by year, by month, and then day. Um, but there is also some disarrangement. For example, for 1821 through 27, uh, for the inward manifest, there is a segment of miscellaneous, if you will, manifests following each year's main sequence of inward manifests. And you might wonder, well, why is that? And that's mm-hmm. a very valid question. Um, and uh, the, the answer is that these records were actually microfilmed 
1981 and 1982 for a customer service order, which, of course, was long before I came to the National Archives. And a smart archivist back in those days asked our microfilm lab to make a, a copy of the film for the archives to save for future use. Uh -huh. um, and it sat on the shelves for a lot of years, and finally in 2008 I was able to get this microfilm published as a National Archives microfilm publication, which makes it easier for everyone to access. And uh, I can understand your, your, your guests wondering, well, why did it take so long between 1982 to 2008 to actually turn it into a microfilm publication? And that's a very fair question. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I think a lot of it goes down to the fact that in the early 1980s, the archives su suffered terrible budget cuts. I understand around 17% of the budget was cut. So they lost a lot of people and lost the ability to get things done that you know, should have gotten done. You know, mm -hmm. If you don't have the people, stuff just doesn't get done. And mm -hmm. the microfilm publication w program was one of those things that got severely cut in those days. Well, that, that, that is unfortunate that it took so long. However, uh, the late Dr. D. Palmer Woodard, in 1999, I don't know how many people even know this, she initiated a, a project to transcribe the Slave Ship Manifest. And so for those who, who want to find out more about this project, they should go to Afrogenius.com, uh, the slave data. And in that, you'll see that they were able to transcribe some of the Slave Ship Manifest. So this is a resource available to people right now. Absolutely. And I'm really also happy that there is a 2008 publication uh, which uh, would describe exactly what the records uh, look like. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue to talk about the Slave Ship Manifest to New Orleans. So just a quick break, okay? at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you have been listening to Claire Kluskins, and she has given us just some brief information on the Slave Ship Manifest to New Orleans. Now, Claire, I'd like to know how many ships were actually involved in the domestic slave trade, and just tell us a little bit more about some of the ports of departures. Okay. Well, Bernice, I, like I said before, I'm, I'm not an expert, so I'm not really sure how many vessels were in, involved in the trade, but as, as we mentioned, the trade was pretty big. 
Um, and I'm sure some folks were sent by land as well as by sea uh, between the parts of the South. So it was probably a combination of, of both methods. Um, and um, there are slave manifests for other ports besides New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should mention here that the New Orleans Slave Manifest, for, for most folks, the easiest way to get access to the New Orleans Slave Manifest is probably Ancestry.com because they are now uh, on their web on their on their site, mm-hmm. and Ancestry.com also has some other slave manifests from the National Archives uh, that I believe were digitized from the directly from the original records, and uh, that database they call uh, Southeast Coastwise Inward and Outward Slave Manifests, and they put a date of 1790 to 1860 on them. Um, and the ports involved in that are Savannah, Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, Mobile, um, and Charleston, and Beaufort. And, and Beaufort, okay. Uh-huh. And I pr- apologize if I'm not pronouncing Beaufort correctly. Um, so, uh, well, you know, when you when you think about this whole domestic slave trade, so many people may have thought that the slaves were actually transported on land. But when you talk about having these documents available, I mean, let's just talk about just the the genealogical value of of what you what's in those uh, manifests. I mean, do you? Do you think someone could actually find their ancestor in in one of those manifests? Well, it's it's certainly possible. Um, I mean, as with other aspects of genealogy, um, you need to have more than one record to point to to say, you know, that's your person. But you know, if you have a name and you know you have of someone that you believe was transported and you know what their age was. Uh, you know, roughly when they were born, and you know, the, since these records give their age, uh, you know, that's certainly something to help corroborate that someone was the person that you're looking for. Um, you know, some of the manifests do list a surname for these individuals, but a lot of them only list a first name, and so that can be uh, a troubling spot as well, uh, because if you've only got a first name, that's a little bit less to go on. And the other thing that may prove difficult is, and it's it's hard for me to tell, not having you know studied you know hundreds of these. Um, it seems that in most cases, the the well the formats for the owner or the shipper, and it seems that in most cases it is the shipper who is named and not the previous owner. So it it if you had a, a, a name of an owner, but you know you don't find that person as the owner on one of these manifests you might um you might not know that this shipper is the person who you're really looking for at that point so um you know there there it's it's they're certainly valuable um but there's certainly no guarantee that any anybody in particular is going to find their their ancestor here um if they don't have other corroborating information to sort of help connect the dots Right, and you do have to connect the dots, no doubt about it. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat, and I don't know if you can answer this question. Do you, is there any information to say what actually happened to the, the slave-carrying vessels? 
I, what, I'm not sure exactly what what's meant by that. I mean, what what happened to them? I mean, they they are the for the inward manifest to New Orleans. You know that that vessel arrived at New Orleans. For mm-hmm. the outward manifest, you know that the vessel left New Orleans, but it doesn't tell you necessarily where they were going. I know. I hope that answers the question. And oh, and the other thing is, um, folks need to understand that. Uh, there aren't records for every year because, as we mentioned, you know, we're lucky to have these records at all. And so, for inward manifests, there are no inward manifests for 1808 to 1818, as well as 1858. And there are no outward manifests for 1813 through 17, 1837, and 1859. And certainly, it's possible that manifests were lost in other years that we do happen to have manifest for as well. Mhm. And what what you know, what was the general condition of the manifest when you all started to review them? Um well, understand that I was reviewing the microfilm not the original manifest, but I mean they're, you know, it's it's good quality paper as they used in those days, so they are in in general in in good shape. Mhm. And are the manifests, I mean the original manifest stored somewhere or were they destroyed after they microfilmed them? No, the original manifests at the time they were microfilmed were in Washington DC but in uh, in the last 10 years they are now um at our regional archives in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh for the reason that sometime in the last 10 years and I don't recall the year exactly, uh the archives decided to regionalize the records from Record Group 36. Uh, the records of the U.S. Customs Service, so that the records created by the Customs Service beyond the Beltway, if you will, out in the different parts of the United States would go to the regional archives serving that part of the United States. Uh So Louisiana is one of the states uh, that our Fort Worth regional archives serves, so that's why they're in Fort Worth currently. Right. So you gave an example of one of the manifests, and yeah. there's a question. Just once again, explain exactly what is on the manifest. Okay. For those who are just tuning in and they want to hear it again, let's let's help uh, others understand what's on that manifest. Okay, sure. Let me get another one here. Uh, this is from 1844, and my printout isn't quite as big on this one, but it's it starts at the top. It says, Manifest of Slaves on Board the Schooner Van Buren uh, of North Kingston, Burthen, 75 tons, so that tells you how big the ship is, whereof J.B. Babcock is at present master, bound from the port of St. Mark's, that would be in Florida, for the port of New Orleans. So this is an inward manifest to New Orleans. And then there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven columns of information. The first column is names. The second column is sex. third column is age. The fourth column is the stature, which is the height in feet and inches. Uh, The next column is class, which they use to describe the skin color of the individual. Uh The, The next color is shipper or owner's. And the final column is the residence of those shippers or owners. And so on this one of the schooner Van Buren, there are two individuals. One is Harriet. She's female, age 35. She's five foot one and a half inches tall. She's described as black. And the shippers or owners for her and the other lady, who I'll say in a moment, 
or William H. Um, it looks like Alar. I could be reading that wrong. Yeah, William Alar, William H. Alar, William H. Ware. Excuse me, William H. Ware of Philadelphia mm-hmm. uh, and Florida. It looks like. Um, and the second individual is Mahala. She's a female. She's 20. She's five foot seven. Uh, also described as black. And then the uh, inspector of the of customs at the port of departure. Uh, uh, well, the inspector at the port of departure um, examined them on the 25th of January and signed off on the manifest. And also the uh, the, the master of the vessel and the owner or shipper had to sign this as well. And then when it arrived at New Orleans, uh, which was on February 1st, then the uh, collector of customs or the inspector signed off on it as well. And so he signed off on that on February uh, 1st of 1844. Mm-hmm. Now, th- this is a, a pre-designed form of which they had to write in the names That's of the right. individuals? It's, it's a pre-printed form, um, and it looks like the different uh, ports, uh, different forms were used at different ports, but they all said the same things. So I have one in front of, the, front of me from this Port of St. Mark's, uh, which is pre-printed, and it has the Port of St. Mark's uh, pre-printed in it, and also then I've got another one here from the uh, Port of Baltimore uh, mm-hmm. that's pre-printed, and it has Port of Baltimore pre-printed as well. So they're, mm-hmm. they're pre-printed forms, um, you know, conforming to the, the law, requiring, you know, what they were supposed to have on them, and all they had to do was fill them in. Right. Now, I mean, the, the genealogical value, I mean, for those who will go into Ancestry.com, and if they find an ancestor, and I'll give you an example of something that I did. I was uh, searching for my ancestor and saw that she was born around 1815 and in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I continued to search, and I came across this slave ship manifest from Richard, Richmond, Virginia in 1849. And it was on a, the bark Cheyenne. And so when I saw that name, I mean the ship name, I saw her name, and it was first and last name. By the way, everyone on that particular manifest had a first and last name. Yes, there are quite and, a few like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so when you when you see that kind of information, I mean it really just makes you want to study it and do whatever you can to find information. So I went to the archives. I wanted to find the ship. You know, somebody may say, well, have you found the ship? Do you know what the ship looked like? Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, uh, the, I went to the Finding AIDS room, and I put in a special request to find the ship. Mm-hmm. And they did find me a ship <laughs> that yep. was built in some, it was like 17, 1793, and it described what the ship looked like. But also, I continued to do research on this ship and found when it arrived in New Orleans, and I found a newspaper clipping that they cited the captain because the ship was rat infested. Ooh. So, can you imagine human beings? being transported on a rat-infested slave ship. Against their will. (laughs) Against their will, 
and now they're citing this ship as it arrived in New Orleans. So there's some research that people can do uh, to really try to to make sense out of this whole domestic slave trade. And so I went through this this journey. I think that's how I ended up communicating with you because I I wanted to know as much as possible about that ship. Sure, and well, newspapers I, like that are, are are a fabulous resource, um, you know, for lots of research. But certainly for the the arrivals and departures of vessels at, at seaports, that was newsworthy stuff back in those days. So that's certainly yes, something that people should look for. Yes, not only that, but they should also look for the ads. Mm-hmm. Because once the, quote, cargo arrived in the port, there were slave pens that individuals were put into, and then they were put up for sale. And so they will see the, the various sales going on. And so this is a, a unfortunate journey that many will see their ancestors go through. But when they're asking this question and they're in Mississippi, they know they're in Mississippi in the 1880 census, but they're seeing that they were from Virginia. The question or the antenna perhaps should go up to say perhaps they were on one of those slave ships. Absolutely, absolutely. And and for those who uh, don't uh, like maybe looking online or find it inconvenient, the, the microphone publication, M1895, um, people can look at that at the National Archives Building in Washington, D.C., and also at the National Archives Regional Archives in San Bruno, California, Denver, Colorado, Chicago, Illinois, Kansas City, Missouri, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Fort Worth, Texas, Seattle, Washington, and Anchorage, Alaska. So they have a lot of different places they can find the Slave Ship Manifest. Absolutely. Now, are any of the microfilms available to the state archives, or is it only the federal archives? Um, well, certainly the, the microfilm publication can be purchased by anyone who wishes to do so. Um, I did a search in worldcat.org yesterday to see if I could find it uh, in any other libraries, and I was not successful. So I'm not sure if there are other libraries or archives that have purchased it or not. Well, I want to open the lines if there's anyone who would like to call in and ask a question. Please call 646-200-0491 and press 1. If you would like to ask a question, please call 646-200-0491. So what other uh, recommended resources would you suggest that the listeners uh, look at to attempt to understand this whole domestic slave trade issue? Well, there's um, a number of books that have been written. Um, There are are four uh, that I'm aware of that that sound like they would be very useful to folks. One is by Walter Johnson, and it's called Soul by Soul, Life Inside the Antebellum Slave Market, and that was published in 1999. Uh, There's another one by Ralph Clayton, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N, called Cash for Blood, the Baltimore to New Orleans Domestic Slave Trade. 
that was published by Heritage Books in 2002. Um, a third one. Would you say that one again? It's Blood by Blood? Um, cash, cash for Blood. Cash for Blood. Uh-huh. Cash for Blood, the Baltimore to New Orleans domestic slave trade, published in 2002. Um, a third one is by Robert H. Good, Goodmeestad, I'll spell that, uh, G-U-D, M E S T A D and that's called a troublesome commerce the transformation of the interstate slave trade and that was published by Louisiana State University Press in 2004 and uh, the fourth book uh is by Stephen that's S T E P H E N Deal D E Y L E and that's called Carry Me Back The Domestic Slave Trade in American Life uh published in two thousand six. And I believe uh people can find all of these uh you know at bookstores or Amazon dot com, that kind of thing. Mhm. Well, these are just some really good resources for our individuals to check into. Now, I sent you a couple of questions that I received. I don't know if you had an uh, opportunity to look at the questions that the individuals wanted to ask you. I didn't get a chance to look at my email today. I did look at my email yesterday, so you'll have to update me on what they wanted to know. Well, I'm hoping that they will call in because I sent them directly to you. <laughs> okay, and I apologize, but I wasn't able to look at my email today. Certainly, I understand that. Well, I'll open the lines once again. Anyone interested in calling in with a question, please feel free to call in at 646-200-0491. Now, what would happen if... We look at a microfilm, and it's very, very difficult to to read it. How can we get a clearer copy of the microfilm slave uh, ship manifest? Um, most of these images, I think, should be pretty good. I, I, when in reviewing the film, I didn't really see any any terrible problems with them, but it's certainly certainly possible that there are some individual images that are difficult to read. Um, what I would recommend to people if they obviously cannot you know, read it online or on the microfilm is to print out an image uh, that, that they're interested in and to note the, uh, the roll number that it came from, uh, and they should uh, write a letter and enclose a copy of that printout um, to the, and, and write, write the letter to our regional archives in Fort Worth uh, since they're the ones that have the original manifests of the New Orleans arrivals, uh, to uh, to ask them to see if they can get a better copy from Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. And and they would be able to get one. Um, Fort Worth will certainly respond to their their letter as they feel is appropriate. Sure. Right. Now, when you reviewed some of the uh, slave ship manifests, did you see any? particular notation that was listed next to some of the slaves such as 
such as, and I'll give you an example of what I picked up that uh, Dr. the late Dr. D. Palmer Woodard wrote. She said that she examined several of the records and found that they would put some notation. For example, when they arrived in New Orleans, uh, there was an individual, I'll say the name was Sam White, and Sam was number 12. And there was a statement that said, well, he appears to me to be a full-blooded mulatto, but in other respects agrees with his transcription in the manifest, mm -hmm. which means that they had to make sure that the description that was put on the list was consistent with who arrived, and somebody right. was checking that off. So right. that's what I was referring to as far as what have you um, observed. Yeah, I, I hadn't you know noticed that. I'm sure that that occurs on more than one. But yeah, I'm the the collector of customs or the surveyor of customs. Uh, or some kind of ins inspector, the deputy collector of customs, you know, had to inspect not, you know, the paper record as well as the individuals and agree that they are what was said they were. Um, and obviously, in that case, there was some disagreement as to this individual's, you know, color of skin. Um, but yeah, they sometimes they'll just sign off on it, and other times they will say, you know, more specifically that they examined and found it correct. Uh, depending on what what the officer felt they, that they they needed to write down, but certainly those kinds of things you know would those kinds of disagreements undoubtedly occurred. Right. In fact, I'll just kind of just to share with the listeners some of the other uh, statements that I observed uh, that, that uh, Dr. D. Palmer Woodard uh, wrote in her description of the manifest. She there was a person by the name of George Washington. And there was a statement, appears not to be quite black. I should judge him to be three-fourths or, if such a mixture be possible, four-fifths black. Okay. Now, <laughs> which is quite interesting that someone would look at them and, and try to make that uh, that decision. There was another uh, individual by the name of James Brown who was listed on the slave ship manifest, and there's a statement that says, appeared to have a tawny tinge instead of black, but which I conceive might be the effect of ill health. And so they were really going through this and looking at the person and looking at what was written in the manifest. And so the documentation is, is just rich in, in details as far as, as possible. Now, there's a, a question coming out of the chat. Were there uh, uh, many records reflecting outbound ships from New Orleans? Well, yes, there are certainly a lot of outbound manifests as well. And to, to give you an idea of, of the, the how many there are of the inward manifests of the 30 rolls of, of microfilm that are in M1895, um, 16 rolls are inward manifests, vessels going to New Orleans, and um, the uh, remainder... 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Uh, yeah, 14. That's right. That's why I'm an archivist and not a, a mathematician. Uh, the remaining 14 rolls are outward manifest. So yes, it's it's pretty evenly split uh, between inward and outward manifest. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And for the outward, I mean, could you tell kind of where they're going? Well, a couple that I, I looked at, one, for example, uh, was going to uh, Galveston. So they're going uh-huh. further west, uh, you know, where the uh, cotton trade was uh, uh, expanding to, and I'm sure they're going to other ports as well. Um, so it's, you know, wherever the need was, they were they were going, uh, you know, in both both directions, I both suppose. Both directions, yes, yes. So and then inward, could you did you see a trend? Were were they mostly coming from Virginia, or from Charleston? Well, it was you know it was a variety. As I said earlier, it was you know as from as far north as Baltimore, I noticed one, and of course all the way down the coast and you know to Florida, um, you know they were they were they were coming from a, a variety of ports, certainly. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have any recommendations as to how a researcher should review the records? Um, I think always, you know, patience is a good thing, you know. (laughs) Uh, You know, don't expect uh, the person that you want to pop out immediately at you. I mean, I hope it does. Um, But, you know, sometimes it takes longer to not find something than it does to to find something. Um, And certainly with all records, you know, the name may not be spelled exactly the way you expect to find it. You know, they find that your individual doesn't have a last name. I hope they do, but um, uh, in these records, that is. Um, But, you know, to be patient and to... To take the time to, you know, if you've got a year or a range of years in question, to study the records and, and really understand what's there, uh, because sometimes uh, understanding what's there will help you understand what's what's not there and what the what the patterns are, and and you know if and and also to pay attention, I think really to the to the names of the shippers and then try to determine where these people were shipping from, because that might be the best clue to uh figuring out whether that whether slaves were being shipped from the area that you're interested in to you know to New Orleans or or not mhm now did you see um and I'm just looking at uh gender and age did you see a trend as far as the number of men versus the number of women in any of the slave ship manifests? Well, it seems from at least from the ones that I have here in front of me that they're pretty evenly divided. There's there's a, a pretty even mix of of men and women. It's not you know one or the other, and mm-hmm. there are some some children as well. You know, uh, even as young as one month old. Even uh, well, I don't know about one month old, but an infant. Well, it's one's eleven months. Um, but yeah, there are there are some infants here as well. But it's a, a mix between men and women, fairly mm-hmm. evenly, it seems. And could you tell whether there was like a family grouping? Um, it's it's certainly possible in some instances. There's, um, uh, for example, this is the uh, the brig, the um, Victorine, uh, which uh, was arriving at which left Baltimore and arrived at New Orleans on the 26th of March of 1844. And there is on here a Kitty Snowden, and this is one of the ones that has surnames, a Kitty Snowden who's 25, a Charlotte Snowden who's uh, 18 months, um, another Kitty Snowden who's an infant, she's two months. Um, and then further down, uh, there's a name in between them, but uh, there's also a Peggy Snowden who's who's age 10. 
so it would certainly suggest itself as being a a family um a family group yes most definitely most definitely and you know as far as perhaps individuals have not looked at the notarial records in in New Orleans but certainly once those ships arrive someone had to notarize that and there should be a whole new set of documents that individuals can look into just to see what happened to the individuals once they arrived in the port. This is this is just really uh, uh, an amazing set of records. There's just no 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 doubt about it. Oh, absolutely. Well, do you have any additional information you want to share with us uh, before we close out on the call tonight? Um, I, I really uh, can't think of anything in particular. Um, just uh, always, as and your caller, callers and listeners know this, I mean, it, genealogy is one of those hobbies where long-term persistence is necessary and, and you can't give up, and it, it pays to take the time to really immerse yourself in the records, all the records that are are potentially available to sort of become a, a records geek, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, to think, as we've been discussing here this evening, to think broadly about all the possible records that might be out there and to systematically go out there and, and re- review them. And also to uh, sometimes revisit the records you've already seen you know, years ago because today you might know something uh, that wouldn't, wouldn't have leapt out at you, you know, a number of years ago if you, if you looked at the same record because you know more now than you did before. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, there there are several questions coming out of the chat. And one of those questions is, what is the most interesting thing that you found uh, as an archivist? Um, the most interesting thing I found as an archivist? Um, well, I guess there's there's a couple of different microfilm projects that I, I did that um, that I, I, I thought were interesting anyways. Um, one is uh, there is a fragment of the 1890 census of Delaware, uh, which was of African American farmers in the 1890 census of Delaware, and, and this, this frag. And of course, as your listeners know, a lot of the 1890 census was most of the 1890 census was destroyed as a result of the fire in 1921. Uh, but in some of the obscure administrative files of the geographer of the Census Bureau, there was this list of African-American farmers in 1890, and what they tried to do was to find those same individuals in the 1900 census, Mm -hmm. and a long, long story as to why they were doing this. It related to a report on agriculture that somebody in in the Bureau was writing, and they sort of, I guess, questioned his conclusions internally, Um, but when you know, when I, I found these, and I certainly was not the first person to look in that box, I realized, you know, the significance of this because, you know, there isn't anything else for the 1890 census for uh, Delaware that mentions people. And so, um, you know, I got these records published on microfilm. And uh, so it's, you know, one of those fragments of the 1890 census that's now now available to people. Mm-hmm. Are there still boxes of records that have never been opened at the National Archives? Well, you know, everything has been opened at least once, but that doesn't mean that every single item in it has been looked at. Um, and there are discoveries happening all the time. You know, one of our military archivists a couple of years ago found 
the original telegram that was sent uh, uh, by Abraham Lincoln to uh, the commanding generals in the field. Um, and everyone knew about the telegram because it had been published numerous times in in, in the military orders or whatever it was published in, but no one ever had seen the original telegram ever and uh, since the Civil War, and uh, one of our military archivists found that that original telegram. So you know, yeah, there are things that are always being found. So yeah. Right. Well, there's a question, and they just want to know: Can you tell us that fragment, that 1890 fragment? What is the publication number? Oh, you're going to test. You're going to test me on this. Um, you know, I've done so many that I, I don't remember all the numbers. But if if you're the question, if the person will uh, go on their computer on Google and just Google 1890 Census Delaware um, that should pretty much get them to uh, the description on our website. And is it digitized? Um, I, I'm not sure whether it's on Ancestry or not. Okay. I don't know. Well, Claire, I want to thank you so much tonight. There's just so many more questions coming out. And what I would recommend that everyone uh, does, just continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com because we do have just so much to share and so much to talk about. Certainly there's an, a, a whole issue about advertisement and what kind of ads were out there for uh, individuals who were arriving on the slave ships. So let me just give everyone an idea of what's happening next. Next week we will have a special guest, genealogist, writer, and lecturer, Janice Minor Forte, and she will discuss the 386-page Heritage Family Stories book, published by the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society of Chicago. Uh, this hardcover book is a fully indexed compilation of African-American genealogies, family stories, pedigree charts, and family group sheets. So I'd like to just say thank you very much, Claire Kluskins, and remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday mornings and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone, and thank you so much for joining the show tonight. Good night.